Welcome to the 13th episode of Tomorrow Never Knows, the podcast on women and history, women and politics, gender and everything else. I'm Emma London. I'm Charlotte Lydia Riley, and this is the second part of our two-part podcast on activists and um, female activism in particular. Yes, so we're going to be delving into um, more specific examples, Mm -hmm. so um, a bit about winning Marikisela Mandela, who is a kind of symbol of everything that can happen to a woman when she becomes an activist mm-hmm. and a bit about the British anti-apartheid movement as well yeah and women's roles within it yeah um, so Emma do you want to explain why we're focusing on this today well Winnie Madikisela Mandela died on the 2nd of February this year at the age of oh sorry <laughs> Winnie Madikisela Mandela died on the 2nd of April this year um she um was 81 mm-hmm um, she was born in 1936 and she's kind of lived through the worst part of, well, she lived through the entire apartheid system, but she's also kind of emblematic or a symbol for the very worst parts of township violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and her, the obituaries in the wake of her death have been very mixed. Yeah. The international press has published some stories South African or the South African public have reacted in a different way. So mm-hmm. in South Africa, she is generally, well, she's considered a, a problematic person, but yeah. she's generally celebrated mm-hmm. and she is hailed as the mother of the nation. Mm-hmm. She's one of many mothers of the nation, but um, it's a title that she was given in the 1980s. Yeah. Um, Whereas the international coverage of her has been a lot more focused on this kind of problematic the problematic the violence she endorsed necklacing which is the putting of a burning tire around someone's neck until they die Mm -hmm. um she is implicated in at least two murders yeah um and both in the late 1980s and she is also seen as the sort of very worst part of well anything to do with mandela yes i mean absolutely and you know i think what's important when thinking about Winnie and, and the, her kind of response to her internationally, you, you can't separate how people think about her from how people think about Nelson Mandela. No, um, they, they've become a very yin and yang type yeah, of situation. Exactly. And I think as in, in many ways, as Nelson Mandela internationally became more and more elevated to a type of sainthood, you know, he wasn't, he hasn't, it's important to recognise he hasn't always been uncritically celebrated in Britain, for example. No, you know, no. When Margaret Thatcher held the thought, held the idea up until the very end yes. that he was a terrorist. Absolutely. And there's the kind of very famous example, for example, of the Oxford students wearing T-shirts that say, hang Nelson Mandela. Um, but, you know, there's a kind of gradual transition from in the 1960s him being seen as a violent terrorist to by the moment of his release in Britain, most people, I think, having a sense of him as a kind of freedom fighter. Um, and then after he's released... A sort of pinnacle of justice. Pinnacle of, yeah, and this moment of, you know, kind of 27 years in prison on Robben Island as being this kind of horrific... And it is, you know, a horrific experience to go through. And then after he's released, he becomes very much in Britain and in America and in other places around the world, this elder statesman who has an increasing international role as well. So he's he involved, isn't he, in that kind of sense of, like, the the, the elders. Yeah. Um, people like Jimmy Carter as well. Kind of, yeah. These, these kind of... That's actually a criticism against Mandela in mm. uh, recent 
scholarship is mm-hmm. that he his presidency was more focused on the international community than it yeah. was on inside South Africa. Absolutely, and he you know he becomes perceived internationally as as, as this kind of political saint, yeah. he's a freedom fighter who won freedom for his people and who kind of resisted what is now seen as a very and the the south african rainbow nation was very much sort of channeled through the person of mandela to the extent that a lot of people assume that the whole country would fall apart on mandela's death yes and which mandela died in 2013 and south africa is still here by the way it's again extremely framed through kind of post-colonialist readings of african post-independence politics as well this sense that transition is difficult or you know people who really don't know civilized man yeah people People that really don't know very much about African politics thinking, talking as if they're experts about, you know, oh, the moment of transition is always hard or, you know, how do you unite these kind of warring groups as if as if elections in the north and the west of the world just always go completely smoothly. <laughs> um, we wish. But, but Winnie, in comparison, has got a really complicated legacy and, it, and in many ways, you know, as the more that Nelson Mandela was seen as, as some sort of political saint... Winnie was seen more and more as this really difficult, the violent... little devil potentially yes. on his shoulder. Exactly. I mean, we, the the Lady Macbeth in that yeah. relationship, right? Yeah. The person, sort of the the problematic figure, um, representing everything that was dubious or difficult about the apartheid legacy. Yes. So Nelson Mandela represents the kind of negotiation, the preparation, the sitting down at a table, mm-hmm. whereas uh, the wearing of a suit. Whereas winning Madikizela Mandela represents the wearing of military fatigue, Mm -hmm. um, raising a fist and uh, calling on townships to become ungovernable. Yeah. Which is exactly what she did and exactly what he did. But they have very different experiences during the apartheid era. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that makes Winnie this very interesting person to think about um, in terms of South African politics is because she she epitomizes so much of that struggle that mm-hmm. we're kind of having in this post-apartheid era where activists and activism is you know diluted mm-hmm. with hindsight that it seems with hindsight that the result the outcome is given that mm-hmm. apartheid is going to crumble and therefore sticking to the more statesmanlike approach of negotiation mm-hmm. is obviously a more better moral choice yeah. than arguing for the weaponizing of of youth and of course that narrative also completely you know elides the fact that mandela was in prison on terrorism charges and was the leader of the you know violent anc response to the apartheid state yeah. it's not it, you know it, it it's a complete retelling of that history yeah and well, one don't, i don't think mandela would himself would you know be in favor of but it's um so the the difference between them so winnie was born in 1936 Mm -hmm. so she's quite young in comparison nelson was born in 1918 Mm -hmm. she is his or was his second wife he was already married when they met and had two kids um but he got divorced that wasn't the first marriage wasn't by most accounts not a very good one there's Mm -hmm. allegations of domestic violence and all sorts of things um and winnie is much younger she's a social worker Mm -hmm. Uh, she's from an impoverished rural community in what is now the Eastern Cape, 
where she grew up in a family with a lot of girls and some boys and the girls were meant to wait on the boys Mm -hmm. and sort of do the work and the boys were kind of privileged. So she comes from a a fairly common background but she seems to have taken a very unusual Mm -hmm. approach to it. So she's, I think maybe her, the seeds of anger were sown already Mm -hmm. back then. Um, She was also surrounded by the stories, like many people who grew up in the Eastern Cape, surrounded by the stories of, of the noble Corsa warriors mm-hmm. um, and the Corsa wars that were fought like throughout the 19th century against the British. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's kind of imbued with this resistance from the start. Yeah, she has her own and political this, trajectory. Which yeah, comes and from... a strong historical yeah, perspective. Absolutely. Um, and she, she's Corsa like Mandela, so he is, has also grown up with those stories, but Mandela is from a much more privileged background mm-hmm. and is sort of a more kind of, you know instilled in him to be a leader of some sort and 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 he becomes one because of her own determination and refusal to Mm. cooperate with stuff she doesn't agree with Mm -hmm. um we're saying she also you know she stands out as well against the wives of the other she you know she stands out against mandela because she's a woman and much younger but she's also much younger than the wives of the other yes so mandela is a leader of the anc or the anc youth league um And in 1960, the ANC is banned and Mm -hmm. half of the organisation escapes abroad. So it becomes an exile movement. Um, But bits of it remains inside the country. A lot of that is being propped up by the the people who are mostly known as wives, Mm -hmm. (laughs) who are actually fundamental to the survival of of the ANC because a lot of the male leadership end up in uh, prison on terrorism charges or treason charges. Um, so Mandela goes to prison in 1963, at which point uh, Winnie is 27 and has mm-hmm. two young daughters. Um, and I think that's quite significant because the other wives are, you know, in their 40s mm-hmm. at that point. They have slightly older children. Yeah. Um, but Winnie very much has the kind of nurturing motherhood still to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an incredibly difficult situation to be in, but she's incredibly stoical. She comes to the trial wearing like the finest outfits you could think of. She's mm-hmm. also a very beautiful woman, mm. so she makes frontline uh, frontline headlines. Um, and it's you know the other other women. I mean, maybe it's it's unfair to compare her to people specifically, but one person to think of in the same terms is Albertina Sisulu, mm-hmm. who is the same age as Nelson Mandela, who later becomes very significant in uh, the 1980s, mm. the kind of opposite of of uh, Winnie in township politics. Mm-hmm. Albertina is a nurse. Um, she works on like community relations. She becomes a co-president of the United Democratic Front, mm-hmm. which is like the visible um, opponent of apartheid oppression mm-hmm. in the 1980s um and also you know she's put in prison and treated horrifically but the fact that mandela nelson mandela becomes this symbol of anti-apartheid movement internationally puts an extra spotlight on yeah. winnie and that in return puts the security service on her back a bit more so she's yeah. kept in isolation for 491 days mm-hmm. in pretoria prison mm-hmm. in the late 60s from 1969 to 1970 and it's you know it's that's she comes out of prison mm-hmm. changed yeah. and she herself says that she's been brutalized because yeah. she's been hearing the torture of others in cells surrounding her and she's not allowed to speak to anyone apart from her interrogators yeah and she's already you know generationally different from the other ANC 
these kind of key ANC activists. She's born 18 years later than them. She mm. has, you know, she hasn't, maybe we talked about this before on previous podcasts about how generation plays an important part in women's activism in terms of what you're striving for and what you're willing to settle for. And that maybe younger generations have different demands. Yeah. And that, um, you know, Winnie, maybe the anger that she has is partly, you know, it's partly her background, it's partly her experience of being brutalised, it's partly her kind of personal politics, but it might also be having, you know, this slightly different generational outlook, mm. this more radical conception of both how to resist apartheid, but also maybe what a post-apartheid state should look like. Yeah. Um, the sense of winning a war. Yeah. I also wonder if there's bits of it being a social worker. She will come mm. in contact with, you know, the, the most struggling elements. Yeah. Um, her first job was as, as a social worker in a hospital in Soweto, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's kind of interesting to think about how if maybe being a social worker and that sort of community organiser in a way mm-hmm. makes you less... <laughs> able to put up with stuff or more, more exposed to other things yeah. Um, yeah, yeah more exposed to the very worst i mean interesting uh, emmeline pankhurst was a social worker yeah um it's uh, actually you know it's an early example of a professional role for women yeah but i think um, but in, for, in the case of winnie she's the first black woman mm. to be uh, get a degree in, and become a social worker wow. in south africa so she's pioneering yeah absolutely but i think it can often be a radicalizing experience yeah actually um because as you say it puts you into contact with the people whom the state is failing or whom the state is you know in the case of apartheid yeah. south africa deliberately oppressing or deliberately ignoring. Yeah. and she will also have come in contact with the very kind of brutal um mm-hmm. apartheid bureaucracy yeah and its disregard for for people so um and in 1977 it gets worse because she's banished to mm-hmm. Brantford's. yeah um so internal exile basically yeah. she's picked up in the middle of the night with one of her daughters from her house in Soweto where she has her community mm-hmm. and her bonds uh, her work and she's driven to this house in the pretty barren orange free state where she knows no one it's far away from anyone or anything she could possibly uh, be engaged with mm-hmm. and uh, she's there for eight years mm. and returns to Soweto I think without permission Mm. But that's just a thing that Winnie does. <laughs> she returns in 1985, which is when the townships are uh, inflamed by violence. There's yeah. a state of emergency. The apartheid state is incre- increasingly violent and both very targeted killings of apartheid activists, anti-apartheid activists, but also incredibly discriminate violence yeah. against just, you know, the kids who have now been rioting for... Um, six, seven, eight years. Yeah, and this is you know this is an international a moment of international context, both in terms of so what could loosely be termed kind of Southern African nationalism. So you know up until the nineteen up until nineteen eighties, the um, anti UDI um, violence in what's then Southern Rhodesia, which becomes Zimbabwe in nineteen eighty under Robert Mugabe, who also has complicated wife Grace, yeah, um, who also has this often often also characterised as a Lady Macbeth figure. Mm. Um, but also the with the collapse of Portugal, with the collapse of the Salazar regime in Portugal, the um, violence in Angola and Mozambique as well. So you have yeah. this kind of southern uh, Southern African context for, for an increasingly unstable um, apartheid state in South Africa. But also the international context of increasing uh, kind of condemnation from an international community, the voices of... Um, 
you know, newly, well, not even newly independent by this point, kind of independent African nations having a more, uh, in, having a, a louder voice in the United Nations and in the Commonwealth as well, so yeah. being able to kind of condemn South Africa. And also Britain and America finally moving towards economic sanctions, mm. moving towards kind of political boycotts, sporting boycotts, things like this. Yeah. So the, you know, part of this violence in 1985 and part of this kind of anxiety is about South Africa becoming an internationally yeah more cut off as well shall we talk a little bit about women in the british anti-apartheid movement then we can always return to winnie (laughs) the international context is interesting i think because we said um or emma said earlier that you know the anc is exiled or part of the anc is exiled in the 1960s and so part of where these people go um they go to dar es salaam they go to paris um but they also go to london so there's an anc presence and stockholm there's an (laughs) anc presence in in a lot of cities in no, so the there's the ANC women's section has a particular kind of representation in Britain and the anti-apartheid movement, the AAM, is the sort of British response to this. So there's a British activism which is you know, particular figures on the left are key in this. So Barbara Castle is important in anti-apartheid activism in the nineteen sixties, Fenner Brockway, who um works for the um, movement for colonial freedom, mm. um, you know, becomes very active in anti apartheid movements and it becomes a kind of you know, I think we've spoken before about Jeremy Corbyn's involvement with anti-apartheid activism. Yeah. It becomes something that, that happens on the left. But women have a particular role in it in Britain. So both in terms of um, one of the big kind of responses to anti-apartheid, the anti-apartheid movement runs a boycott campaign. So they have posters, we can put some examples of these on the website, but say, you know, look before you buy, boycott the products of apartheid. Um, you know, the people asking people to boycott um for example outspan oranges which are grown in south africa brought into the country um, via southampton so there's quite a lot of local southampton activism against apartheid okay. um which is i work at the university of southampton so it's a kind of interesting <laughs> local context for me um and people like uh, simon stevens has done work on sort of the barclays boycotts and these kind of big corporate boycotts mm. um there's also kind of a smaller scale ones so kevin o'sullivan's work on for example um boycotts in uh, Irish um, supermarkets against mm. oranges, uh, sort of grocery um, cashiers refusing to touch South African produce, refusing to kind of bag or, or sell South African produce. So it becomes kind of an active thing that people are doing. But it's interesting because, you know, domestic boycotts, boycotts of food, you know, it's about hitting hitting these kind of... Uh, it's supposed to be about kind of producing a political response, but it's also a financial one. Mm. And, you know, in the 1980s, 70s and 80s, women are in control of those budgets. Women are in control of household budgets. So it's a, f- a form of female activism. It's bringing pol- politics into the domestic space. And it's really reminiscent of the sugar boycotts in the late 18th and early 19th century, which are used to try to draw attention to um, anti-slavery activism, mm. but also to hit the pockets of slavers who are you know who can't sell their sugar yeah which again is you know um claire midgley has done lots of really good work on how this is a particular um how this brings women into anti-slavery activism at a time when otherwise women are very separated from the political sphere Mm. you know it's women who are in charge of household accounts it's women who have tea parties it's women who you know serve um, sugar or you know care about tea services and things and so you get all these wonderful sugar bowls that's that are you have cer- a sugar bowl ceremonially empty on your table in the early 19th century which says on the front you know boycott sugar yeah boycott slave sugar and then there's also the kind of more active political response so the sort of anti um 
apartheid women. So, for example, in 1985, in the context of this uh, increasingly militarised South African state, there were protests in London on International Women's Day in support of Teresa um, Ramashamola, who was one of the Sharpeville Six who had been sentenced to death in December 1985 for... Um, being present at a protest where uh, black collaborators were killed. So collaborators mm. with the apartheid state were killed. And these um, six people were um, sentenced to death. They they had an appeal for clemency rejected in December 1987. Um, but the British women's movement and the women in the ANC women's movement in Britain responded with a campaign of letters and postcards asking the British government to intervene in this case. And this sort of huge international protest and eventually the death sentences are commuted in July 1988 to prison sentences instead. Mm. So it's it's interesting, you know, both that it's these different women's groups, but also they use International Women's Day as a, yeah. as a moment to do this protest, as a moment to kind of draw attention to it. Um, and there's some great pictures from from that kind of events of people with placards saying like women say no to apartheid violence or Theresa is innocent apartheid is guilty. Um, so there's lots of sort of. It is really fascinating. It's a sort of. We talked a little bit in the previous episode about how women's activism, um, is often seen as very non-confrontational or sort of separate from the political sphere and both I suppose if you look really crassly at consumer boycotts you can you know they don't necessarily impact country to country politics yeah although the intention is that they do but they still have have a great impact and then when you look at women and violence Mm -hmm. like um Winnie and others who you know were put in prison Mm -hmm. and you know had death sentences commuted um, some who were executed it's they are both kind of complicated sides of the same coin yeah, in a way absolutely. I mean you know the the British women's campaign has direct results in 1985 next the fashion shop cancels its contract with South Africa yeah. as a result of women's activism um, and this kind of I think it's interesting in the context of the 80s in Britain because they they are part of the women's movement in Britain, and so they have this the personal is political narrative, yeah. which then plays into this idea that all of the activism that they're doing is political. It's not just so they they run the African um, the anti apartheid movement women's committee deliberately makes links with British feminist groups and British women's groups, and they organise like workshops and day schools and stuff. Mm. And so part of this is just about sharing stories, just about sharing stories. Part of this is about sharing stories and telling you know, um, kind of reiterating narratives and raising awareness of the apartheid regime. Yeah. But they also do more practical things. So, for example, they expose the use of Depo Provera in South Africa, which yeah. is the controversial contraceptive injection, which is being, you know, is, is a kind of a whole history to it, but it, lots of experiments being run on women in the developing world, essentially. There's some really excellent work being done by Kate Law at Chichester mm-hmm. about it right yeah. now. Um, but, you know, they campaigned for three years, and um, they, with the... Um, the AA Health Committee, and they forced South Africa to resign from the International Planned Parenthood Federation. Mm. And so they're actually achieving specific things whilst in, in the context of these much bigger conversations about womanhood and solidarity and sisterhood yeah. and what it means to be a kind of an international woman or to think about. You know, it, it, it's both personal and political in, yeah. in, the, in the most specific sense. Winnie's um, position within the South African sisterhood is very complicated mm-hmm. because she is... She becomes the mother of the militarized youth, the mm. kind of the t- violent township youth, um, 
at the time when others like Albertina Sisulu are actively trying to discourage her mm-hmm. from inciting violence. Uh, the slightly older generation are very worried about the brutalization of children mm-hmm. um, with good reason. And they are worried about putting children in the front line. And, you know, children are anyone up until the age of 18. Um, so they they deploy motherhood. I mean, Albertina Sisulu is another woman who often gets called the mother of the nation mm-hmm. in South Africa. Um, she's been dead since 2011. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's... They have this motherhood kind of symbol Mm. put on them but they operate it in very different ways so for Albertina Sisulu and many of her generation um it's a kind of caring position to be in it's also it can be radicalizing and politicizing I mean there's a lot of women who who get into politics and township resistance through being mothers and having to protect their children from the incursions of the security police or the army and the indiscriminate violence Mm -hmm. And the children will be rioting because that is what happens in the townships after the Soweto massacre in 1976. Um, But Winnie has this other very angry response. Um, Part, and I think one of the main differences is that Winnie herself has been very brutalised by the regime. Mm -hmm. So there is absolutely nothing, you know, we can't condone Winnie's choices in any shape or form. She's implicated in two murders. Mm Um, and possibly more with her endorsement of violence. But she is a product of her time in South Africa. She Mm -hmm. lives in Soweto, where everything is happening around her. Mm -hmm. She isn't isolated on Robben Island like the male leadership, including her Mm -hmm. husband. Um, She isn't in exile. She has to be there. It's outside her front door. Mm -hmm. Um, And in her home, because her home is raided, you know, regularly. Um, There is a reason why she surrounds herself by bodyguards. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's it makes her a very complicated figure in South African history it makes her incredibly difficult and complicated for the ANC to deal with Mm. particularly because she was incredibly popular among the city dwelling youth and you know which is visible now that she died that it only took an hour and people were singing songs Mm -hmm. to her outside her house Um, she is also you know, it becomes even worse. When, so when Mandela leaves prison in 1990, the only reason people recognise him is because Winnie is walking next to him mm-hmm. because he has no one has seen a photo of Mandela since 1963. Yeah. Um, so he's an aged man, and the mm-hmm. the press standing outside the prison in Paul where he was released, um, they have no idea who to look for until they see Winnie. Mm. And so she, Winnie is the recognisable face of anti-apartheid activism yeah. in, within South Africa. And of the Africa. Mandelas and what that means. And of the Mandelas, yeah. She is like the spokesperson for the Mandelas. And I think that puts an emphasis on her that is difficult for her to escape. Mm. Um, and it's also kind of gives her an edge to that kind of unwilling, unwillingness to compromise that yeah. has just surrounded her throughout her life. Mm-hmm. Um and it all quickly falls apart. Um, but still, in 1993, she becomes... She's elected president of the ANC Women's League. Yeah. And a position she holds for 10 years. She's mm-hmm. re-elected in 1997. So she ousts the previous... The <laughs> the co-presidency of Albertina Sisulu and Gertrude Schoper, who mm-hmm. um, were elected in 1991. And it's, you know, it makes her... Again, very complicated. There's lots of people who don't want to work with Winnie. Yeah. 
and there's lots of people who blame Winnie for, you know, the ending of the Mandela marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe rightfully so. She she did have affairs, but she was also on her own for 27 years. And that's also, I mean, that also kind of speaks to, points to the difficulty. Just, you know, this is something... The role of a political wife is very difficult because you you have to fit within kind of boundaries and notions of, of sort of performative wifehood as well. Yeah. She is being a wife to a man who is... She, you know, she's a wife to a man who is not there. Um, so she's supposed to perform this kind of wifehood. And then when a marriage breaks down, if your part of your identity is based on your your wifeness, the, the fact that you're ma- your married relationship, mm. you know, there are always going to be people who, who resent you for that in a way that sort of husbands and men, that doesn't come into play. You know, women's relationship is always kind of filtered slightly through their husband, and particularly for people like Winnie, mm. for whom her, you know her husband has such as this important towering figure. Yeah. Um, it it sort of points to that particular difficulty. She's not she's not just the mother of the nation. She's also the wife of Nelson Mandela. Yeah. You know, and it, it becomes very difficult for her to deal with that role. And, and after the breakdown of the marriage, it, it's it's still very hard. And she is um, interestingly, she's. I mean, she's appointed, I think, Minister of Culture or something Mm -hmm. in the post-apartheid state. But she is never that great a government minister. She, Mm -hmm. you know, she is a community organiser. Do you have a poem? I do. Um, So I have a a poem by June Jordan, um, who is an African-American poet, um, who was, um, yeah, very important kind of... um, no Caribbean American poet sorry who was an essayist and a teacher and an activist and her poems often deal with kind of gender and race but she wrote a poem uh, called Poem for South African Women um, which was a commemoration of the 40,000 women and children who on the 9th of August in 1956 uh, performed protest against the Donpass in, in the capital of apartheid and she presented this poem to the United Nations in August in 1978 and it starts, our own shadows disappear as the feet of thousands by the tens of thousands pound the fallow earth into new dust that rising like a marvellous pollen will be fertile even as the first woman whispering imagination to the trees around her made for righteous fruit. And it's about the role of women in protest um, and particularly mothers actually. So she says, the babies see salam as mothers raising arms and heart high as the stars so far unseen nevertheless, nevertheless hurl into the universe a moving force. And who will join this standing up and the ones who stood without sweet company will sing and sing back into the mountains and if necessary, even under the sea. And then the first, the final line is, we are the ones that we have been waiting for. Mm. So it's, it's a really, really beautiful point, but it, it's about, you know, women and children, um, but particularly women having a particular role within these um, within these anti-apartheid prote- protests and partic- perhaps also a particular symbolic role for you know this is 1956 so for perhaps black women watching from america mm. the particular symbolic role of Afri- south african women and children protesting against apartheid and how that might have been kind of filtered back into the civil rights movement yeah in america which of course also has important individual women who be- who become particular you know obviously rosa parks but other women as well who become important symbols mm. um for example you know the kind of idea of with these women as having these totemic yeah. identities. So, shall we move on to our recommendations? Yes. 
So today we thought we were going to recommend uh, other Twitter accounts because you know that we're on TNKPod on Twitter and at Lot to Lydia and mm-hmm. at Emma Eleanor. But we also follow other people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and my recommendation is quite topical for today because yeah. it's um, South African History Online. Yes. So that's SA History Online. It's It um, posts kind of on this day snippets of mm-hmm. things that happen in South African history. It's very good at bringing women to the forefront. Mm. Um, and women are often overlooked in anti-apartheid history because of all these heroic men. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a very good good account yes. to follow if you want to s- stick to the South African theme for a little bit. And a good history account to follow. Most history accounts on Twitter are terrible kind of history and pictures things and they're all lies and, and they're unattributed sources and lots yeah. of terrible things going on. But this is a good, you know, properly referenced, properly kind of yeah. evidenced uh, history Twitter account. Um, mine, kind of sticking with the theme of, of sort of interesting topics or themes. So mine is... Um, at Ms. Jean Reese, who, uh, which posts, you know, uh, quotations from work by Jean Reese, who is a novelist, who um, wrote perhaps her most famous work is The Wide Sargasso Sea, which is a post-colonial response to Jane Eyre. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a novel about Bertha, the wife in the attic, Rochester's wife in the attic. And, she, you know, Jean Reese was known for her kind of, a lot of kind of post-colonial literature, her responses to a white literary canon. Um, so she, she herself is, um, was white, but she was born in, in the Caribbean and she grew up there. So I really like it because her words are really interesting and evocative and they work very well as these individual kind of quotes. My favourite one at the moment is, um, which fits in nicely with this theme, not only of post-colonialism, but also of protest on 19th of February, it tweeted one day, the fierce wolf that walks by my side will spring on you and rip your abominable guts out. Excellent. Which is a, a, you know, something to a mantra, perhaps something to end this podcast, something to end this podcast on. So, uh, next time we're going to be talking about writing, uh, how we do it, why we do it what other people think about it um (laughs) and women writers more generally yes Um, writing and femininity whatever that means so get in touch before then we're on twitter we have our newsletter we have our website yes um and we look forward to hearing from you yes uh see you soon see you soon bye